the best prompters or motivators or catalysts for that is suffering. You know, it's such a great teacher. It really causes people to, to wake up a little, to get introspective, to ask questions, to reassess things and to, you know, seek new course in life. Because if things are like comfortable and manageable, we tend to just keep going in that same direction. So I find suffering's a wonderful teacher. You know, it's a wonderful friend. And we, we sort of don't appreciate it when we first meet it. But when we see what suffering promotes and brings to us, then, you know, we see, see its gifts, that, you know, the, 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 the hidden gifts in it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. Yeah, thanks for pressing on the button there. We really appreciate it. Thanks for pressing. Play. Yeah, because it's great to have you here. It really is. We're delighted to have you. We genuinely are. And so it's thanks, a lovely Mel. conversation. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's going to be amazing. You, hold on, folks. You're this in is for a be treat. Loads yeah, of really secrets. Um, yeah. Nuggets. Before we get into it, though, uh, it's uh, September and uh, kids are back in school. And Sarah's kid is coming and out of the belly. And uh, your kid just turned 12. Oh, my God. Wow. May. Yeah, I know. Elsie is soon to turn 12 as well, Dave. It's the last year of school. But um, yeah, I was just thinking, because uh, Steve, you always yap on about wanting to create your own school. So if today you had, it was your first day of school, what would be happening? What would the curriculum be for your first day? You could um, actually, you could choose a subject each. Okay, yeah. Uh, it'd probably be outdoors. <laughs> it'd nice. definitely be outdoors. <laughs> no surprise. It'd definitely be outdoors. What would they be wearing? Oh, just whatever they wanted to wear. So no uniforms? No, definitely not. Do you not. not think there's any benefit to uniforms? I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's loads of studies that could tell you them. But well, you like, just asked me the question right now and I just made up the answer. <laughs> no, there's no thinking beyond that. Well, like, I loved wearing a uniform because I didn't have You to could think. wear a uniform, Sarah okay, Fawcett. Thanks. You could wear a uniform because it sounds like you really want to wear one. I just like not having to think. Like, you just wore the same thing every day. It was perfect. Yeah, yeah but within it was like, oh, my shirt isn't right. Or I got dirty. Well, we could review it. We could review yeah, it. Okay, but anyway, back to the curriculum. Right. You guys don't like but we wear the same clothes most of the time. <laughs> That's a good catch. Yeah, we wear the. Yeah. No, I, I do change my clothes more. Pants and t-shirts. You know, I do right. change my clothes as per my wedding vows. Sometimes a bit more well, often. No, you yeah. Ironically, one of Dave's weddings vow was I do promise to change my clothes more often. Yeah. yeah but anyway. Anyway, we've gone way off track. Okay. 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 The school is on the farm. It's outdoors. On the agenda is probably making lunch or making dinner or making bread like there has to be some element of practical thing and I suppose there is some learning aspect so at any age uh, what I was age thinking like 12 classes? I was thinking 12 year olds because these you know we okay. talked about our eldest kids which are 12 year olds but 12 is hard because they're like certainly my daughter wouldn't want me teaching her at all oh no. yeah you know the old preteen and thing. maybe my one were um we're building something Oh, good So we're, we're out and we're building like our new classroom. So we're all dinner together and we're designing what we'd like and we have a budget. So there's like, so there's mats in there. There's basic carpentry in there. There's, there's geometry some, for There's going to be some electrics in there. There's going to be, what do we want in our classroom? What's our classroom to hold? Now, so, just so for anyone who's wondering, this is very theoretical. So please don't, you know, too yeah, much. but I like that because you're yeah. thinking of all the subjects that we might have to do, but and also there's a project practical. to practically embody it. Yeah, yeah. so I think right. that that would be where I'd start with. That'd and, be a good first day. Uh, yeah. And and then the, the, the other half are making the lunch. The other half are making the lunch. Oh, okay, yeah. so that's yeah. that's your day there. Yeah, yeah that's that's it. It. Yeah. So you got cooking and building. Yeah, yeah. And, but you used to say you like. <laughs> that school would be for everyone now, because obviously we're very practical creatures that like to do. Would you go for a sunrise swim? Oh, they'd be meditating and all that as well. 
will be uh, on the topic of this conversation. There'll be very much be. How do you get a, a kid to meditate at twelve? Well, maybe it's like, maybe it's just like breath work or being aware of their like maybe it's only two minutes or three minutes where it's quiet or maybe it's maybe it's the same way they say that if if we were all treated like kids in elementary school where we were given a glass of milk and cookie and lied down and have an afternoon nap the world would be a better place maybe it's as simple as lying down and having five minutes of silence where they literally everyone's just quiet and lying down and that might be after lunch which is great do you know what i suddenly thought of uh didn't uh your daughter elsie uh, teach herself how to play this like actually quite difficult piano piece and yeah, how did she yeah. do it because you did something particular uh, it was because well just I was playing me I was playing song, playing songs in the car and then she just listened to it and thought oh that's lovely and then she went home and she just found videos and started playing it and now she can play I think about four minutes of the seven minutes song. yeah but how cool is that she to- she has oh, the tool amazing. to teach herself which yeah. how did she learn that how did she learn that YouTube I guess probably from watching others that you can you know you can learn that she's just she's very whip smart like they were they were playing around with IQ tests there recently seeing how smart they were and she was pretty very but good like, I think too. that's the coolest thing ever because I remember like st- struggling with piano for years because I hated going to the piano teacher who would always make me play really st- just stuff that I didn't want to play whereas to know how to teach yourself how to play is well, unreal yeah, well, we, I we, could, did, we did debate there May was like do I go to piano, piano lessons or to teach myself and May was like I don't like going to piano lessons I don't want to go and it was like I'm just going to teach myself yeah. Oh, yeah, by YouTube, well, and that's well, not. But like what's mad is like that's YouTube. I spent I spent two hours like we got a piano there last year, and it was for me to learn to play the piano and the girls to play the piano. And the first day we got it, I spent two hours trying to play. I always wanted to play Night Swimming by OREM, so I was there buying away for two hours, and I probably learned I'd say four seconds of the song. Like four seconds the song took me Good about day. two hours. And Elsie has one of these memories where she can look at a Wi-Fi password and she'll remember it six months later. Like yeah. she's got one of these crazy like elephant like memories. So she literally, she'll just watch something and then she can kind of play it like, and she'll play like five minutes of it and she'll just remember it. And you're kind of going, geez, my, I don't have that. Like my mind is built differently or my. She must've yeah. had her omegas. Yeah. I don't know what's going on, but she's pretty good anyway. So anyway, anyway. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. yeah. So maybe in my version, not the So if you've got any me. other thoughts, if you've got any other thoughts on our school, send us emails to podcast at the happy pair.ie. Yeah. So this, this is an email address that the wonderful Sarah has set up along with her child Mush. Podcast at the happy pair.ie. Yeah. 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 Do Please give us any now. feedback, any feedback. Yeah. We'd love it. So, okay. So as you can see, this episode is with the wonderful Gary Garrow. He's an amazing legend class I'm going to stop using adjectives. He's a Vedic meditation teacher for 20 years. He's based in Byron Bay in Australia. Um, a good friend of ours, Sam Corlett, was telling us about him and really his work is incredible. Really, really He's got is. a wonderful retreat centre known as Soma. Yeah, which they've had gone for the last six years. And he's really focused on the internal landscape because modern life is very much focused on the external about stuff and things and success and fame and money and all those various things, whereas his whole, the last two decades of his work has been focused on the internal, how we can have a better experience internally and therefore the external will represent, will be less important. So beautiful conversation, loads of takeaways. I think you're going to really love it. We certainly adored it. Um, so yeah, without further ado, we give you Gary Girl, unless we've got an ad, a sponsor. And if we do, we're going to put that in right now. Dave, quick question for you. Where do you go when you're looking for vitamins or yoga mats or electrolytes or like kind of movement or yoga equipment? Well, Stephen, wait and I tell you here. So, Can't um, wait. Yeah, it's going to be very exciting. Imagine there was one place on the internet, the home of all of the best health brands that you could purchase. 
all the things that you need without the fuss of going to different websites or even to different stores. Wouldn't that be cool? Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, tell me more yes. about this, Dave. Well, these two other super exuberant, excited, identical twins. Yes, we did say identical Just twins. Just like us. Yes, started a business called health.com. And the idea is that it's a portal with all the best health brands that you do not get in other places. And they've all been validated by them, by their community and by experts. So it saves you having to go through reviews and whatnot. They have really high standards, fantastic products. That's cool. I hate looking through reviews. Yes, Listen. they do everything from and hair most products. Most of your friends that come on this have discount codes. Do you have one of these for us? Dave? Oh yeah, we do. Yeah. Oh, jeez, I was just getting it. Thanks. To you. Thanks so yeah, we've got a twenty percent discount code. Our friends from health.com discount code twenty percent off. The code is healthy pair H E A L T H Y P E A R. That's health.com healthy pair, and you get twenty percent. H. You spell health.com as H E A L F. Dot com and the discount code is H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-P-E-A-R for 20% off and rumour has it we just got a box we did you just get a box around. I just opened it it's really really cool we got all sorts of stuff from MCT oils to um, Lion's Mane supplement sprays we had electrolytes we had an acupressure mat we got journals really really cool stuff genuinely do check it out you get everything from hair products to vitamins to supplements to movement equipment they have so much really cool stuff so health.com do check them out woo so Gary, I guess a, I guess a good jumping on point is like in terms of how did you get into spirituality because it's something that it's a it's a like I guess growing up in Ireland we were you know it was in a Catholic little culture so spirituality wasn't it was religion as opposed to spirituality and then as Dave mentioned you're kind of fed these societal values that money and various things are are, are part of the answer to happiness and it's not to find spirituality you kind of have to take a little detour and just wondering how did you get into this. Mm, I think I always had this spiritual side to me that I was a little bit scared of when I was a kid because um, I, I felt just innately that there was something more than what we were being fed in life. I really felt there was something sacred and beautiful and purposeful in existence, but no one I really saw around me was moving in that direction. Um, like everyone else, it was just all about sport, chasing girls, surfing, getting drunk, being consumed by teenage culture and all of that. So I, I remember being, my my mum used to say I was a really deep thinker and I guess um, I went with culture and what culture told me to do, which was all those things I mentioned. But I was always like reading spiritual texts. I got into to Buddhism, Vedic philosophy. I started to read a lot of self-help stuff. And, um, and then it wasn't until I was, you know, 20 or so, that my life just started to head down the toilet pretty fast. I got really burned out, stressed out. I had like a significant event happen. And then I, I then started my spiritual quest in earnest by necessity, just because I needed some relief from all of the anguish that, that I, I was going through at the time. And prior to that, my pursuit had just been purely intellectual. Like I was reading a lot. I was exploring a lot of philosophy. I was... Um, fascinated just by that world and everything I was reading has had a very powerful resonance but I started to realize that there needed to be a practice something that actually gave you direct experience of those states and these experiences that you're reading about and and feeling like a deep craving and sense of wanting to unite with so for me um, it was when I was 21 that I actually learned Vedic meditation and that was kind of the real change change of like direction it, it shifted the needle so massively 
And quite quickly for me, it was like what I'd been waiting all my life for, I think, in many ways. Something that you really got me in touch with my deeper self. Yeah, because it's hard. Society really doesn't push you that way in any shape or form. And then it's it's kind of almost like an either or. Like, as I know myself, when I first started yeah, getting yeah. into meditation, it was like, I want, I'm either going to go start a business or else I'm going to go become a monk. And it was totally either <laughs> yeah. or. There was no, there was nothing in between. Mm. It was like it, this spiritual path, there's this yearning and this longing for this depth. But then at the same time, it's almost seen like you're either down the spiritual road or else you're hanging but out I think, and kind of... But I think that's because like we were, were as identical twins, we're hyper-competitive. And I think we had put our lens of sporting being hyper-competitive and then business and, you know, chasing girls, all that kind of competition. And then you got it, we got into, we ended up doing V-Passionate when we were 22, V-Passionate Meditation. So we ended up getting super into that. And then you were so competitive. It's like, right, I'm going to get enlightened. This is it. We're going to get enlightened, Dave. <laughs> and it was like the competitive focus shifted into that was the goal as opposed to the irony is like, that's just so stupid, really, you know, but quite funny as well. When I look back. I think it, well, I think it's a pretty good goal to pursue myself. But it's a good goal, but ultimately, I think it's about unraveling the. You, you, like you know more about this, but it's the it's to move from the doing mind to the being, like getting in touch with the being, and that can't like enlightenment. There can't really be, and maybe that's something interesting to chat with you about is that how how presence, being present, and also having goals and ambitions and these type of things. Where's the balance between that? Because, mm. well, I think the first thing to tackle is that idea of. You know, you're either monastic or and in full pursuit of your spirituality, or you're someone who's just abandoned it and committed just to play your role in the material world realm of life. So, I, what what I was shown through my teacher was that you can you can unite the two. And when you look at sort of classic spirituality, certainly from the Vedic context, there are monks and sadhus and yogis and generally they're not invested fully in in i guess the material pursuits of life nor the relational um, pursuits they're typically not having children and families and running businesses and all of that but then you find actually there there's a hell of a lot of them who are really involved in making the world a better place making a difference on on a, a physical material and practical level and I, what I discovered through my teacher is like there's like a, a path towards enlightenment, which involves being like heavily engaged in, in daily affairs, you know. And so that was what we call householder practice, you know, like the, the integrated person, and which is arguably far more difficult than someone who's monastic or reclusive. Like my teacher used to say to me, he's like, you know, throw a yogi into your life for a week and watch them just run back to the mountains really quickly because, you know, having a family and staff and, you know, all these other things that you have to take care of rather than really just being at one with the moment and meditating and, and you know, following the, the impulse of the moment is very different to what all of us get kind of um, laboured with or even, you know, burdened by, you know, taking on that big responsibility to raise a family and to, you know, do what you guys are doing as well, which is educate people. And it's, it's, a, it's a different way to live your spirituality. And I think you're either born for one way or the other. You're just in your DNA and your makeup is to be someone who loves being away from, from the world, loves silence and solitude. And there are other people who are really like, the opposite, 
they love people and they love opportunity and they love potential and they like things and stuff and you know the idea of relationships and family and creation and all of that so I funnily enough went the monastic way I tried to go that way thinking that's where true truth and spirituality and um where ultimate realization was and and I got kind of kicked in in you know, out of India when I was going there to do that, it said, you're not welcome here with that intent. And it literally energetically just ejected me. And then when I went back with a different intent to be a householder and gain knowledge, it said, you're welcome. Please come and receive this knowledge. Wow. So, yeah, it's just like you have to honour where you are. And I think I've got kids and I can't imagine like never like robbing myself of that gift. Yeah, um, best teachers you're ever going to have. Def, definitely your best spiritual teachers, at least mine anyway. They well, I, I remember we, we, we uh, got, have been super into Ashtanga yoga for, you know, and back, back when we were in our early 20s and still that super competitive mindset, we got very competitively into Ashtanga yoga. And, uh, and you know, you're doing series one and then trying to do series two. And I remember whoever our teacher was at the time or someone was, they were saying, well, like family yoga is like, series seven or series eight like that's where you're really going to press all your buttons because you just doing yoga and meditating that's fine but like you know if you want to yeah. really face your crap and i wonder if you could talk briefly gary about your because i remember hearing at one point you were going to india to look for a teacher and so that you could have this kind of teacher guru or student guru kind of relationship where they were going to they were going to open up the gateways to enlightenment and self-realization gary this way just walk this way hold my hand i'll take you there whereas ironically I, i think your teacher is a surfer from the gold coast called tom if i'm correct Yeah, Tom, he was born um, in the US, but his father was a general in the war. And at some point, he kind of encouraged Tom to go and travel. So Tom then left the US, ended up landing in um, around Sydney. And he was fascinated about yoga because he, he was into surfing. And then Jerry Lopez at the time, who was like a champion surfer, um, was in a magazine and he saw this thing about yoga. Well, there's this thing, this guy is such a good surfer and he does this thing. What is yoga? And he hadn't heard of it before. So he went to the um, library in those days before Google and everything else. And he looked up um, in the old cards yoga, but instead of looking at the subject, he looked up the um, author. And so he then found Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda, and then read um autobiography of a yogi and it just set him on this big spiritual quest and he him um, going on that quest then kind of led for him to get deeply into his spirituality and then um, spent most of his life in Australia and that's kind of when I found him um, yeah which was 20 20 odd years ago Um, and and I kind of he, he took me under his wing as a student like he did many others and just really helped in in the forming and shaping of of my potential and um you know was that mr miyagi for me which i was craving you know some some guru some teacher who was had really progressed down that path and could help accelerate one's own sort of journey and i'm very very grateful to that tradition you know in india it's so cherished that guru shisha parampara which is like that, that alignment between a great lineage, a great um, tradition of knowledge and teachers, and as part of that lineage, teachers understand they have to replace themselves. 
And so anytime you meet a student with potential, you, you bring them in, you take them deep into the knowledge and, and you, you give them access to all that you received yourself in the hope that one day they'll continue the work and, and hopefully do better than what you've done. You know, that's the, the guru's ultimate hope is that the student will, um, will exceed what they've been able to achieve. And yeah. when you met Tom first, was he like kind of running an ashram or a monastery or was he, you met him out Where, in the waves Or was he walking across the was, water to collect a surfboard? Like, and you just go, <laughs> there's my man. Well, it was so funny. I had, had all these images in my mind of what a guru should look like. And it was, you know, robes and long beard and all of those sorts of things. And because they were the gurus that I was sort of hearing about and reading about and connecting with and, and sort of, uh, seeing in various ways doing lectures and tours and things like that and when i heard about tom i thought okay yeah this is my teacher and i knew before i met him that, that, that that's what he was for me and then when i met him he was like in a suit and tie and he had short cropped hair and he was clean shaven and i was like what is this <laughs> and, uh, it was interesting it was just i could see beneath that veil there was deep spiritual realization but in, to put it into context, at that time, spirituality and meditation weren't really a thing that was aspirational. And Maharishi, who was my teacher's master, he introduced, you know, Vedic meditation, transcendental meditation to the Western world. And he was wearing long robes. He fit him really well with the hippie movement. But to be with him, you had to wear a suit and tie because he wanted to graduate out of the the acid kind of hippie loving person that was into some alternative life he wanted to show that people were responsible could participate they were law-abiding citizens and all of those things so he wanted to create a level of like um respect amongst the rest of society so anyway when i'd met tom at that time he was like one of those still in that mold of looking really respectable you'd think he was kind of a lawyer or or a businessman or and he was working with a lot of those types of people, you know, mentoring them and teaching. And um, But he then had this other side where he was just real larrikin and <clears throat> real, like, one of the most intelligent people I've met, but one of the most humble, down-to-earth, fun, intelligent guys. So I just resonated. And I think our history as surfers helped us bond pretty, pretty easily, pretty quickly. Wow. And he taught me really to play the, play the different levels of society, you know, like always being accessible to people who don't have the means to necessarily gain knowledge and then being available to people in, you know, who are running organisations or corporations and somehow being able to connect with all the different tiers of society because they're all very, very important. And there's often that idea that you influence the top and you get the people underneath and it's the other thing I believe that if you influence, you know, the, the really the the most, I guess, working class level of society can actually go upwards as well. So you want to kind of work on all all, all levels, all places. Amazing, amazing. And at the other time, you also need friends, which is another thing that he really distilled in me. Like he said, you must maintain friendships. Don't get lost in your spirituality that you lose you know, connection with your friends and, and, and life at large. Because, you, you know, it's very easy to do that, especially in the early days. I don't think there's any danger for me now because I've got kids and running a retreat and all of that stuff. But there was a time where I could have got easily lost in spirituality and, and kind of probably not come back. 
Wow. Yeah, because there's kind of a stereotype that the guru kind of retreats further into the cave and plays the role of the guru and is only there to give out wisdom. But you don't see him out the back having the crack down the back of the cave. Him and the other gurus just sitting, just, you know, talking, you know, talking, <laughs> talking the breeze, crap. talking crap to each other. You know, that way. you don't see that side. It's often just guru yeah. here sharing wisdom. And is he still alive? Is Tom still alive? Do you still surf for him? Yeah. Well, he's in the US now. He's uh, hasn't surfed in a while. Yeah, he's. Uh, I'm not sure how old he is now, but he's. Uh, you know, he's uh, still very able-bodied, but he doesn't tend to surf too much. He's, he tends to body surf. Ah, cool. And does he still yeah. dish out the wisdom? Yeah. 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 He'll, <laughs> cool. be, doing that. He'll be doing that till he's got, till he's you know he's left this world. That's nice. Uh, there, there was a lovely a lovely thing which I read which you wrote. You said abundance is not something that we acquire. It is something we tune into. Mm. Boom. I thought that was really nice. And I guess, like, I wonder, like, and, I, and I'm speaking this for myself as much as others, but it's so easy to go along. Like, you look at the news, you look at social media, you know, we have a, a bias towards negativity. And, you know, that's a lot of the messaging around. Yet, when you think about it, like, if, if you sit and think about it, like, and we, we realize that we've got a farm, so we grow veg and you see the amount of time and the amount of things that have to happen for one tomato to actually exist. And when you focus on that, you go, that is so incredible. What a blessing. But it's so easy to go, oh, the tomato's got a blemish on it and oh, it's not the sweetest or whatever it is, you know. And I just wonder, like, abundance, like we live, for anyone who's listened to this, we probably live more abundantly than any generation of humans that's ever existed in the history of humanity. Yet most of us go around with a feeling of lack and going, oh, jeez, I just don't have the new iPhone or I just, and I'm speaking for me as much as everyone else. This is not, I'm not saying I'm separate to this. And I just wondered, because I know that's been part of your work is how to kind of almost like train yourself to, to feel more abundance and how we tune into it. Yeah. And that, that word abundance, it brings up so many different things. And, you know, I think the most important thing to be abundant in is time friendships health um and also a, a mind that, that that is really clear you want an abundantly free clear liberated mind yet we tend to associate abundance with you know like money pure and simple like money that gets you stuff that buys your houses and cars and clothes and flashy things and and there's you know what your what you just described is like the cultural hypnosis which almost everyone is stuck in and it's very difficult to break out of it in a hypnotic trance especially when everything that we see and everything we hear in our entire society is set up to continually reinforce it and i think that's why cultures like when you go to parts of india where that like is completely reversed and you see they live for the divine you know, they, they cherish the sacred and you see people who really materially have, have so little, yet inwardly they, they, they are so rich. And you think, how, how is it that our culture, you know, has caught this affluenza where we're just so dissatisfied and there's no limits to how much stuff that we need, like nothing will ever appease that degree of like discomfort or dissatisfaction we feel. So what I'm noticing is, is, happening increasingly in our culture is that questioning of why am I really here? What makes life so purposeful? Do I need this? And even you look at, you know, the millennials and then I think the Gen Ys are underneath them. I'm too old to know the actual terminology, but you notice what drives them is not 
like money anymore. You can't bribe them with a pay rise. They want lifestyle. They want something more purposeful. They want to enjoy their lives. They don't just, they're not willing to sacrifice at all just for some long-term payoff of getting, you know, a, I don't know, a title or having a certain amount to retire with. So it feels like there is a really good positive movement towards a more purposeful and meaningful life. And I think like we're collectively going to uncover what that is and how do, how do we like maintain that? And at the moment, we've got so much cultural pressure basically to provide for ourselves and our family. And, you know, there's inflation and all of these other things, putting all of these um, things into question and calling us to continually work harder where I think that's, it's, for me, I've got, I've moved so far the other way. I'm wanting to just have more quality time and to do less and enjoy just uh, the natural world more and more and more. So that's that. That's how we've got to figure out how do we find fulfillment inwardly and outwardly, and how do we actually set up our society so it serves us on a spiritual, material, and um, mental, emotional level? Because it's clearly missing that. Like we've, like you said, we're so abundant in every possible way. Like you could say, like, you know, a few decades ago, there was one tap in our bathrooms. It was cold. Like we didn't even have hot water. And now people get upset if the hot water takes, you know, longer than a minute to come on. You are like, hang on, guys, you, do, you, do you know what miracle that is to actually have hot water? You've got to have, just like with the tomato, all of these things happen. You know, just running yeah. water, running, running water in our homes. So it's like they're the the consciousness shift at some point will will come where people then start to move into just gratitude and gratefulness and this deep appreciation of just aliveness, being alive, being here. Um, you know, it's but that's the most difficult thing because we've been trained for the mind to always seek something. And in the seeking is the recipe for our own um, dissatisfaction. So it's quite a puzzle to solve. Well, it really is. And I think there's like, you know, we were talking about abundance, but then it comes back to like presence and so many aspects. And as you saying that, like, there is the tuning in frequency aspect of it and becoming aware of how fortunate we really are, you know, mm. but then there is the the kind of reality of kind of going, um, like we're programmed so differently. I don't know. I've, I've lost my train of thought there, but I, I, yeah. I, 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 I wonder for anyone who's, who's kind of listening and going, okay, like, where do I start with this? You know, I'm, most of us are products of our environment or all of us are products of our environment. And as we've said, the environment doesn't kind of incur, it doesn't kind of bring forth a natural abundant mindset in a sense. An abundant mindset sounds a bit woo-woo, but really it's just... It could even be faith or presence or another way of... The, you know, whatever the word is, it's just that sense of I am so lucky. And that tends to be a much more beautiful place to live your life from than I wish I had a new car or I wish I had more this or that. It's coming from a point of gratitude and, and grace in a sense. And I wonder like, does it start like for anyone listening, like I imagine it starts with language and going, okay, like when you catch yourself complaining, you're probably not living in a state of kind of going, thank you. Thank you, life. I am so <laughs> lucky. I just had a class brekkie or thanks a mil, Shawnee for, you know, being such a sound friend or whatever it might be, you know? Yeah, totally. I think for me, there's so many different layers and levels to life that we need to attend to. 
And I can tell just by you guys, you've got a very high baseline of happiness, just like your, your set point is very, very high. So even a really bad day for you is probably someone else's best day. So you've just got this natural buoyancy to your spirit, which, you know, you should be very grateful for where, where that comes from. Who knows? Your culture yeah. and parents and your family and all those, all those things. Like it's such, it's such a beautiful thing to watch. Um, however, what um, some people have to cultivate that. Some people have to work because they've grown up in really challenging family dynamics or they've gone through some trauma or they live like with parents who did it really tough and they've grown up with an air of like pessimism. And so the spiritual quest in some ways is about really revolutionizing your mind and how you think. It's also learning to know that you're not your mind, you're not your thoughts, you know, you're the power or the, you know, the spirit which lies well beyond it. Yet um, it's also true that our mind is just so powerfully directive, it can like overwhelm our spirit. So, and then we've got to realise what is our place in the world? Like, because we we have to make a contribution and we've all got this spark in us that wants to find expression and we want to meet our potential. And, you know, there's things in us that want to want to come into the world and be born. So I find the best formula I've come up with is um, to really transcend first, like learn to go beyond your mind, go beyond your body, go beyond your thoughts, go beyond your culture, go beyond all of your problems, all of your cravings, all your desires, like let go of all of that, the material plane altogether and all of the stuff of the mind and go inward and find that place in you which is not physical, not mental, but is spiritual, but is your essence, is that quiet place, that still place. And it's got so many different names, but we know that there's something that animates us. When you see a dead body, you know the animating power is gone. The, the light, the spark, the beauty, the divinity has somehow shifted. So when we, where we start, it should be acquainting ourselves with that, knowing that oh, I'm not my history, I'm not these ideas, I'm not my problems, I'm not my past, I'm not my conditioning, what am I? We need to discover that place first, which is the whole quest of, of yoga and other spiritual practices and also religions too, um, is to know ourselves as that. You know? And as Christ said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. So finding your way into that, that heavenly place inside. And then from there, we have to be really mindful and look at, okay, what's my conditioning and how am I operating as a human being? What are all these ways that I'm living in or out of alignment? And when you start to get more aligned, it becomes really clear where the non-alignment is. And then the practice is to correct that, to do the work, to make that part of ourselves better and stronger. So that we have to constantly like, like be doing that, but in a way which is fun. And we also have to understand life keeps changing. Like it's this journey we're on and it's like I look at what my life has done and is doing and continues to do, it kind of doesn't, it doesn't match up to where I once was or what my desires were or even what I felt life wanted for me. And it's so it's paying attention to life itself, paying attention to your life. 
it's hard. Uh, Sorry, yeah. I was going to say, it's very hard to come up with a recipe or a formula that actually, you know, survives the test of time because ultimately, yeah. like sometimes that word spirituality can be a block for people to go, oh, I'm not into spirituality or any of that woo-woo stuff. And all it is is a word for us to have a yeah. better relationship with ourselves and a better present moment. Like, because no matter what we do, whether we're monastic, whether we're, we have a job, whether we're a family person, whatever stage of life we are, like life consistently gives us opportunities to grow and it consistently presses our buttons. And as yeah. you kind of said, we are more than all our stories or our conditioning or all the various things which we believe ourselves. There is a greater essence within us. And it's yeah. somehow to not get attacked. Like, and I guess ego, ego is some part of it because ego is, uh, there's so much to talk about. My mind is bouncing around with things, but it's, 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 um, it's just such an incredible mystery. And yeah. my statement really, rather than a question is more that there's, there's opportunity in every moment for us to evolve and become a more loving, caring, open, kind human, if we so wish. And if not, we might most like, I see, see this myself, like a lot is unconscious and you're going along and then you might catch yourself. You might catch a little kind of bit of, oh maybe I won't snap if someone says this to me, I'll just observe it. And I think mm. through that, we can become less, our stories and our condition. Present. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's mastering self, mastering the human side. Cause you know, there's that, that cliche. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these really great teachings get lost because they become, you know, things that get misused or overused or trivialized. Like that idea that we're, you know, spiritual beings having this human experience. I think if we woke up with that idea each morning, it would really put us into correct position for how to approach this, this beautiful play we call life. Because we really are in these human forms, in this human world, in this human experience, you know, participating in the, in the game, in the play, in the drama of, of life. But often we forget that we're spiritual beings in that human experience and that part just gets completely lost and we so over identify with I'm a human being and I'm having a trouble here and this is you know an issue and I need to get this done and I don't like this thing that's happening and so the, the wonderful um wonderful word and I'm, it's the name of my daughter actually in, in Sanskrit is called lila which means like a, a divine game or play or sport and so that's how life human existence is described in in the Ved, which means this thing that we're doing it's a game it's a play and we should enjoy it that's brilliant there's a lovely lightness to that that's often so missing in modern day life and as people typically do become more and more deeper in faith or deeper in spirituality whatever word there's a lightness about them and that lightness is often playfulness i remember meeting kind of some wise people before and it was like oh my god they were like little children they were so light and fluffy and it was such a laugh to be in their presence yeah and i think it's kind of that there's there's when our internal becomes the focus, well, then whatever's going on in the outside, it's a lot easier to smile at and kind of go, oh, well, I'm getting like, you know, it's raining and the dog ate my homework and my lunch was kind of crap. And ah, sure, listen, it's all right. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, and, you, and on the topic of faith, Gary, like nowadays in modern day society, so many people and so many of us are consumed with the externalities and consumed with just entertainment and distraction and afraid for any degree of stillness because with stillness there's just this busy mind that's just consuming him and it's caught up like I am not good enough I am not whatever and 
how do we start to overcome that and kind of start to separate beyond our mind? Because like you said something there that we are not our minds, but so many of us have experienced the world only through our mind and we're very disconnected from our body. Our bodies are just to carry our minds around. How do we start to actually kind of tune into our heart or into our gut or into these other aspects of our intelligence Mm -hmm. beyond simply logical and reason? Yeah, it's. I think everyone has to come to that realization at some point in them in in their own way. One of the the best prompters or motivators or catalysts for that is suffering. You know, it's such a great teacher. It really causes people to to wake up a little, to get introspective, to ask questions, to reassess things, and to you know seek new course in life. Because if things are like comfortable and manageable, we tend to just keep going in that same direction. So I find suffering's a wonderful teacher. You know, it's a wonderful friend. And we we sort of don't appreciate it when we first meet it. But when we see what suffering promotes and brings to us, then, you know, we see see its gifts, that, you know, the, 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 the hidden gifts in it. So I think suffering's a good thing. And everyone does suffer, whether they realise it or not. Everyone suffers from this mind that just does not stop, that doesn't sleep that offers no respite. So we kind of cycle from thought to thought and we get lost in mind patterns for most of our waking life, if not all of it. And the problem, with that's the, like the biggest challenge. When you look at the, you read all of these ancient Vedic texts, it'll say, you know, the mind is harder to control than the wind. And the mind gets described as this goblin and this, divi, uh, this beast and as a thief, which is one of my favorite descriptions for the mind. You know, it's this thing that is a thief because it robs us of the sacredness, of the beauty, of the quietude, because it creates all this noise. And we kind of don't access the, the, the sweetness just because it's being overshadowed by, by the inner chatter, the inner dialogue. And the thing that I hope most people start to realize is that inner dialogue is 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 self-manifesting it's not them like you don't where we have these conversations with ourselves but we are not that mind but it uses our voice so we think it's us and we think we need to pay attention to it or it has you know some validity so the challenge of each human being besides you know getting job and sporting family and all that sort of stuff on the inner plane is how do i re-engineer this thing to bring me joy and how do I disidentify with the patterns and the tendency of my mind so I can find true liberation? And it's I, everyone kind of has to come to that realization themselves that then they just get to that point. I'm just sick of my mind. I'm just sick of the noise. And like when someone comes to learn to meditate with me, there's this little questionnaire, this little form, you know, you put in your name and a few other things. And one of the questions is, you know, what benefits would you like to receive or what motivates you to learn to meditate? And almost every time people say, just want to quiet my mind, just too busy, mind won't settle down. And so there's frustration with their own minds. And what, what, what happened? Like no one is there saying, I'm so angry at my liver. Or just my feet. I'm so frustrated with my feet. Like just my kidneys. I just can't believe they're like that. Whereas the human mind, it seems to be this defective thing in part of our anatomy. It just doesn't actually work particularly well. You look at mental asylums, you look how many people have self-doubt, negative self-talk, who, you know, have these internal struggles. What's with that? 
who designed this thing and why is it so defective? And that's a fascinating thing if we want to like explore, unpack or explore like the theories around why the human mind is the way it is. Well, well, well even before, before we get into that, I was just thinking that, uh, that like there's no amount of like, and I'm sure you've met lots of people like that, that have, they've got all the money that they were told to get to be successful and to feel good. They've bought the house, they've bought the car, they've been married, they've done the things which they're meant to do, and yet they feel miserable. There's a hungry ghost inside of them because, you know, no amount of external stuff is going to make up for, you know, a hollow internal journey. And ultimately, most of us at some point, whether it's, as you said, via some form of suffering, a death of a loved one or something that the pain is so much that we're forced inward because this babbling mind is just this mad monkey, this thief, as you call it, like, you know, how do we make it go quiet and how do we ultimately have a better relationship with ourselves? Because when you can have a better relationship with yourself, well, then the whole externality is going to change because your relationship with yourself has changed and that's ultimately the primary one we experience life through. Yeah, exactly. Ch- changing the mind is, is the greatest work. That, that is the most challenging thing. Like even, you know, uh, Sir Edmund, Edmund Hillary, I love one of his quotes, and he, he hiked um, Mount Everest and he said, it's not the mountain that we conquer, it's ourselves. And when you look at yoga and yoga philosophy, yoga is the realization of the self. If you don't like the word spirit, we call it self. And so we have these traditions which are thousands and thousands of years old. And these pathways have been created for other human beings to progress faster on that that, uh, path towards self-realization. But it's had to be, you know, cherished and nurtured and developed because it ain't easy. Like it's it's quite easy for someone to do other things, like to learn to, to read. You learn it pretty quick and learn to get fit. It's pretty easy. Like mostly just don't do the stupid things like eat poorly and not exercise. Like for the main thing, it's quite easy. Yet human beings have always had this inner struggle. And I think we've gotten to the point where the outer realm is so soft and cushy now that it highlights how much work needs to be done on the inner. But if you lived in ancient Roman times where there was a lot of violence and there was, you know, not much food and resources and hygiene and things like that, the average lifespan, I think, was 32. I mean, there's a lot of infant death, so it brought the average down. But when a lot of that, and look at the Stoics, like their philosophy, life must have been really hard and you had to have this grit to endure. Whereas now it's like, it's easy, right? Life has never been kind of easier to, to endure. Like saying biggest grievance is when someone, you know, gets bullied on Instagram or something or they, their iPhone battery dies out or something like that. Um, so I think it's like we, we've got to start to just question everything. I really encourage people just to clear the decks and go, am I living in alignment? Am I in the place where I want to be in my heart. And as one of you guys mentioned, like how do we awaken the heart? And I feel like that is the next big human awakening. Yeah. Is getting in touch with the, the, the more um, the sensitive, loving side of humanity. And when you look at all the people that we cherish in terms of the, the great sages of our culture, a lot of them were just encouraging like this selflessness and this living for other and being more loving and caring and um, 
more connected to to each other and to life's beauty and meaning and I feel like that's that's the next threshold that we need to cross. Oh, I look forward to that. That sounds great. It sounds nicer rather than scientific breakthroughs and new rockets and new computers. It's like more loving, caring humans. Yes, they yeah. are the masters of the universe. <clears throat> the more open-hearted dudes yeah, no, out I, there I love and that. dudettes. Gary, one thing I'd love to talk or uh, see if you talk briefly about is attachment. Because attachment is something that I remember when I first started meditating, I remember stumbling upon it and going, that's fascinating. So it's not like it itself, it's our attachment to it that causes pain. And I think it's something that like I myself and us all, I think, can learn so much about that. I wonder mm. if you could just talk briefly about attachment. Yeah, when you look at like what we said, suffering's a great teacher before. And when you look at into yogic philosophy, it says that the causes of suffering in life are five. There's attachment and there's aversion. There's egoism, fear of death, and there's a, a disconnection from the self there being the five. And they say that if you get the fifth one, you connect with the self, then it eliminates all the other four, which is pretty interesting. So that's why self-realization is the thing that's pursued. But whilst we're on, on the, that road to, to cultivating and developing that, it's, yeah, the, non, the, the level of like attachment or detachment or non-attachment, and they're different, detachment and non-attachment are different things. Um, it's critical because most of human suffering is by that alone. When you make this agreement or you <clears throat> um, start to pursue something or you set out to achieve something and it doesn't play out the way that you wanted it to, you're naturally going to find you suffer if you're attached to that as having to happen. Like whether you're a sports person and you're wanting to win a game, if you don't win that game, you suffer. If you do win, you rise but then you're still beholden to that thing. It's determining your degree of happiness and fulfillment and your sense of self. So the non-attachment is, um, is part of one of the essential things for human beings to develop as, as we, we go along in life. And, you know, we, we've done it in some ways. We're, we're quite good at it, like the weather, for example. Most people aren't attached to the weather. You wake up in the morning and the day just is what it is. But if you've had an absolute commitment that you really wanted a sunny day and the weather forecast said it would be sunny and it's not, you're going to start feeling very powerful things where you reject what is. So in the acceptance of what is, then it makes space for gratitude to come in and for this lightness and this softness of heart and mind. So, the, yeah, the, the most suffering is born of that one thing, which is expecting something other than what is to, to, to be the, the reality or theme of the day. It's almost like they're dualistic, that it's almost like you've got attachment and in the other end of the spectrum, you've got just acceptance. Because, you know, attachment is that something has to be a certain way in order for me mm -hmm. to feel good about myself. Like, you know, if my dinner, if this chocolate brownie is as good as it is, I will be happy. If it is not, I will not be happy. And most of us are puppets to life. You know, that, that, you know, if I win, I feel good. If I feel, if I don't, if I get the rise, I feel good, you know, and it's, and yeah. I'm saying this from my own personal experience. And then the other end of the spectrum is acceptance. And that's, you know, you talked about great spiritual truths and I know Eckhart Tolle, he always talks about like accepting what is and not being, not being against the present moment, whatever life 
provides, mm. the more we can accept it, the more we're in alignment with life and the more kind of thing, the, the easier the flow of life is, whereas the other end of the spectrum is the kind of fighting and the non-acceptance. And like so much in modern day, not so much, but many people are seeking to be in flow state and the very essence of flow state is in your state of total acceptance and total presence. And that's what yeah. it is, which is... Did you, did you ever read that book, The Surrender Experiment? I love that yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. one, I read it again there recently and it's such a fun one for, for just yeah. at, like the epitome. It's this guy... He was like, he wanted to be the monastic man. He wanted to be the yeah. monastic man to go away to the woods and meditate all day. And then he kind of mm. said he was going to do an experiment of just complete acceptance and accept whatever life gave to him. And he wanted to be the monk, but life brought him on all these, a 40 year journey where he became a businessman and spiritual community man and all sorts of different things. And his, his pure principle was just to accept and surrender to the present moment, which I thought was what a, what a, what a good way to illustrate just a simple, such a simple message yeah exactly like he had an idea about what he wanted his life to be like but then life had a different plan and so he, he learned learned to master surrendering to that plan and trusting that plan and that's a, that that in itself is an incredible teaching and then you know he really really <clears throat> broke down that that um idea that spirituality can't live in concert with everyday life which again is like such an important thing for us to see as we evolve as a society, like they're, they are one and the same. And your spirituality can unfold anywhere, whether you're in, in the faraway Himalayan mountains or whether you're living in Ireland and you're working as a school teacher, like that, the classroom becomes just your ashram. Or whether you're a parent and you're raising children, like every day is, is, is your you know, is your spiritual quest just to be a little bit better, a little bit more kinder, a little bit more clearer and more awake. And so that idea that, you know, this thing, if, if there is something called spirit, it means the essence of everything. And when you talk to quantum physicists, they'll say that there's, there's one thing that is manifesting all things in the universe, one energy, just different forms. So is spirituality only available in one particular part of the planet in one particular culture through one different pathway and it's like absolutely not it is everywhere it is everything it's just a matter of are you are you participating in the journey are you fascinated by the journey are you you know getting involved in the game of life or are you kind of caught in the other game of, of attachment and aversion and fear and all of those things Mm, yeah. it's quite a delicate balance because i know myself and we got deep into meditation we we're doing two hours a day and i was like really drawn towards a monastic style existence i became quite detached from life and it was like almost this cold detachment almost trying to look down at life as though i'm so much better i'm not in the middle of it whereas there's a delicate balance between participating with your heart and with your warmth and with empathy as opposed to this cold-hearted I'm detached. I'm better than you. There's, there's yeah, a, it's, force field. the ego is such a little dangerous creature that keeps twisting and turning and you think you're better than ever. And then you realize, oh my God, I'm, ego got me again. I'm just a dickhead again. Excuse my language, but you know, that type of way. Yeah, yeah I know what he's saying. And that's like when you look at the surrender experiment, for example, and I, I read that book after I'd created my retreat here and there were so many parallels that I was finding between what life was doing to him. And then I saw, well, life did the exact same thing to me. And, and it, when you look at what needs to happen on the planet, there's certain things or wheels that need to turn to make that happen. 
And so life has this agenda that it wants, you know, people to evolve and to grow and things to unfold and someone's got to do it. Everyone's got to participate at some level. So there's this practical need of life. And, uh, you know, if we abandon that, then life doesn't really work. And did the universe go to all of this trouble to manifest this thing and just to make us all detach from it and have no concern or love or care for it? I don't, I don't believe that. I think like the whole thing is, is rich and beautiful. Um, but how heavily we're attached to it. It's just like that real trick. They call it um, in, it's like a form of, like a type of equanimity where that even mindedness through loss and gain, through success and failure, there is part of us which doesn't dampen down. It doesn't, it doesn't suffer or it doesn't decay in any way when the material realm of life doesn't take a particular form that we'd sort of hung all our hopes on. So that's when the inner and outer, the, the, the inner isn't governed by the outer. And there's this idea that human beings can be self-referral or object referral. Self-referral means that your sense of purpose and place and fulfillment and happiness is derived from within you. Whether you win the lotto or don't win the lotto, you've got this richness, you feel great. Whether your partner's angry at you or your partner's don't angry at you, inside you still feel heavenly. Whether, you know, you, you get that job or you don't get that job, there's this other part of you which still feels great. And then when you have someone who's object referral, they're dependent on things in the, real, the, the relative material world to be a particular way for them to feel that, that connection or that happiness or that fulfillment. I think all and, of us are looking for a bit more of the self-referral. Yeah, exactly. And you, it's like most people are in that quest for that for objects and never manage to succeed in the quest. So they die under the illusion that my happiness was there. And I love something Jim Carrey said, which you probably heard before. He said, I hope everyone gets rich and famous. So you realize that's actually not what it's all about. So he's someone who was actually able to break through and shatter that illusion, whereas most people don't have that same gift or same ability to do that. So they still think, like, when I get to that place or I own that home or I get this partner or I have children or I get this family or my business succeeds or whatever it is. And so what I've discovered is all of that is complete fraud. And you guys have figured that out too. And I think there's so many, so many people who are discovering that same thing. We've been lied to culturally. And, and a lot of people are ha too happy about it. So we have to realize that it's the, our culture can't really teach us or show us where that is. And that's why I love the wisdom traditions and the ancient cultures, because they've always been in pursuit of this. They've always known that that's where real life's, life's purpose and divinity is. Mm. And then we, we just have to come up with this new model, which this new new idea, because I think religion did did a lot of harm. You know, it did a lot of good, but it also did a lot of harm. It scared a lot of people. Like I don't know anybody who really goes to church much over here anymore. It's something you were forced into as a kid and then you resented it and then it turned you away from, from Christ or whatever it might have been. I even met a woman the other day who I taught to meditate. She learned to meditate when she was a kid. And she was kind of forced to do it by her parents at a young age. Uh, both my kids meditate and I've never said, hey, kids, let's meditate. Because I know that they don't really want to meditate. But I know it's a really valuable skill and it'll come good in later years of life. But I make it, if I develop an aversion to it now, they'll be poisoned off it for life. 
So, you know, then, then these certain structures, as we know, religions, they, they sort of got a bit corrupted. A lot of them are all about power and control and all of these things. Whereas it's really important to make that distinction between religion and spirituality. Sometimes they're the same. Sometimes they share the same, the same uh, scent. But even people are scared off by the idea of spirituality, as you guys said. So we've got to come up with this new thing, which is, you know, you know a beautiful life. It's living a beautiful, rich, you know, life of, of, of joy. It really is that we've all kind of have been sold a lie in a sense, because most of us are looking in one direction. And just over the other side is where most of what we're looking for, like we're looking for deeper fulfillment and deeper levels of meaning beyond that next purchase or that next bar of chocolate or that next girlfriend or boyfriend or house or mortgage or kid or whatever it is. And I don't know how we change society and change the focus of it where where this becomes really it's about having a better connection with ourselves and waking up in a sense. Now that's it's a very classical spiritual thing. Wake up, wake up. But it is kind of the illusion of of material life. And then there's ultimately that internal world and how do we, like, obviously you've been working on it for 20 years and teaching people via your, your Vedic meditations and with Soma and with everything you've been doing. And it is so niche, it still is, like, even, and, like, you live in a bubble and we live in a bubble and we all live in our own little bubbles. But the greater world out there, it's probably not everyone is having these conversations and not, you know, it's not being taught in schools and it's not really, it's not, as common, you know, you listen to music or you listen to mainstream media, you watch movies and it's all about getting more, you know, the subtext is if you get more stuff and if you have more money, you're going to be happy. And that just mm. is not true in most cases. Yeah. I see that like my, my young boy, he's 10 and he's kind of getting into hip hop culture. And you look at what hip hop culture is like encouraging and promoting. You think, Mm. Yeah, there is a there is a you know decent portion of our society that's still still kind of chasing the false target. But all of it, I also realized that you know the earth is a real melting pot. You have really old souls and you have new souls, and everyone is like dancing together. And I remember back, I was once really kind of ignorant. And if anyone tried to wake me up, I would have said, Hey, who are you to kind of discourage me from pursuing what brings me joy? So I feel like part of the life formula is to do the things that bring you joy, whatever you feel charmed to do. Because sometimes people say, oh, if I get on a spiritual path, do I have to stop this, this and that? Or I have to change this and change my diet and adopt this thing? Like, You don't have to do anything other than pursue what brings you authentic joy. And if something doesn't serve you or you notice it doesn't um, you know, create a uh, some sort of uh, uplift in you, then I would just say, then I would consider dropping it. It's like everyone finds it in their own way, in their own time. And, um, you know, there was this great saint, uh, well, the, she, she's still alive, but was asked, you know, um, how do we, you know, create lasting peace? And the saint said, well, you, you should forget about that. And the person said, what do you mean? Like, that's a spiritual quest. We all want peace and we want peace on this earth. And, and they said, no, you don't want that. And the person was really puzzled. What do you mean that's not what we want? And said, and 
the saint said, the only way we will ever experience such a thing is when Mahapralaya comes. And they said, what's that? So it's when the, basically all the ice caps completely melt and the, the world basically gets covered in water. That's the only time when the earth will know peace. So there is something about the Leela, this divine game that is playing out, where that isn't meant to happen. The world is meant to have, as much as we kind of reject it, ignorance and enlightenment in, in, together. Light and dark, it's, you know, it's so contrasty, this planet. You know, and it's part of what we come here for. And there are other planets and dimensions and other, you know, universes where different laws of nature exist. But on this one, it's all by way of contrast. And we, we have to embrace and fall in love with contrast. And often say to people, because we think we want something, but when you peel the layers back on that idea, you realize you don't want that at all. Like some people feel like I want stability, I don't want change, and I want things to be really easy, or I want things to, you know, be predictable. And then we look at the people that violate all of the laws of our society. What we do to them is we incarcerate them and we punish them by giving them the same experience day in, day out. And if you have the same experience every day for your life, it's, that is a prison. And that will pr promote stagnation. It will promote depression. It will feel like life just doesn't have any colour or virtue anymore. But it's the ups and downs that we actually need. That creates the elevationary theatre. It creates the joy and the challenge. So it's kind of learning to, to, to love what we don't love more and realise we need it. Yeah, because uh, like modern day society, we're all looking for the upstroke, just the upstroke, the excitement, the allure, they're, they're reaching the target, but we forget there has to be, as you said, which is one of the greatest paradoxes, there's such a gift in suffering, which none of us yeah. want to suffer. We all want to avoid it. We all have a natural aversion towards it. It's like, no, not me. Yeah. But it's, uh, I think your wisdom. Yeah, it's a different way of looking at, like it's a very different way of looking at things to kind of. Enjoying the downstroke as much as the upstroke or enjoying the challenge as much as the the you know acceptance yeah, of some yeah. gift exactly and that's of any illusion of peace yeah yeah we won't have it we'll never have it you know there's always creation and destruction they're all part of the same dance the evolutionary dance you have to destroy things so there are a lot of other things to be created to emerge if you always have the same thing then that's the the stagnating principle starts to dominate and then destruction has to move in and break it up so we say within the Vedic understanding of reality, there's creation, maintenance, destruction, all dancing together in different cycles and phases and all simultaneously. So we need, we need all of those things. It makes, you know, it makes the Leela very rich. Could you imagine a story where it was just kind of all the same and boring and not really much happened and it was like it's Groundhog Day. They did make that film and it was like the guy just kept trying to commit suicide because it's like, I just hate this. This such a great movie though such a great movie uh, yeah it's like in terms of great spiritual texts or movies i thought that was just such a classic yes yes it was brilliant you know so 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 inspired i, I, you know? I wonder gary if you tell us about soma and your journey to set up your retreat because I, I remember hearing how you were it was something that you always wanted to do and felt you were going to do. And I think I heard, I heard you speak out and you were traveling, you used to buy, I'm going to put this in, well, in let, the let center. Gary talk about and it. I thought that was just so cool. Yeah. Well, it was, 
I kind of got into this work by accident. You know, I, I, I wasn't, I was into spirituality, but I didn't really know how to get fully into it. So it was actually, you were spiritual, you were spiritualizing. I was reading, but it didn't feel satisfying. So then I stumbled upon meditation and that just changed my life. In the very first session, I had this, this being visited me and said, you'll be teaching this someday. And it was the first time I'd ever heard that voice. I was like, what was that? Okay, I'll take your word for it. It felt right. And then just one thing led to another. And then I was in Bali one time and I was there because I used to work as a, as a photographer once upon a time. And I was over there shooting a campaign and I walked past this building and beautiful. You could tell it was a pretty special house behind it. And it was the front gate with a little hole. And I kind of bent down and looked in the hole. And then this person opened the door and I was caught red handed. And they're like, I was like, oh, no, this is embarrassing. I looked up and it was this woman that I'd met. And uh, I taught her to meditate years earlier. And she's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, what are you doing here? She goes, I run this place. And then I walked in and that voice came to me again. And it said, run a retreat. And I was like, okay. And then sure enough, I, I set up a retreat there. And I'd always desired to have like my own space where instead of renting other people's properties, I could, I could set up my own. And so for about... I don't know, it was 12 years or so that I was just dreaming. Uh, I could just feel like it would come sometime. And I, I knew it was it was a certainty. I didn't know the details, how it would all come together. But I, like you're mentioning, I was just collecting artifacts from all over the world, like, you know, different things that I would incorporate into my retreat if and whenever it came, in, came to life. And then sure enough, um, yeah, about maybe six or so years ago, I, I, I found land in Byron Bay and set up a retreat. And we've been going now for, for nearly three years. And uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's a pretty uni unique thing. It's kind of, I, I love it. It's beautiful, but I have no attachment to it as well. It's really bizarre. You know, you kind of love something and pursue it, but you could walk away tomorrow if you needed to. Um, and it's just like, I'm completely fascinated continually about just this, thing that life does to us this journey it's taking us all on like with um mickey from you know the surrender experiment and i'm sure even to this day and you guys as well you're like life just doesn't sleep people look at you and go oh cool he's he's nailed he's arrived he's landed he's kind of done his dream thing and you're like no because i still have these energies that kind of call me to do other things or take me other places so Soma itself is a beautiful retreat space. It's in Byron Bay. It's on 22 acres. And we've got a really, uh, it's, it's pretty pretty spectacular house that's the main accommodation. Um, it was the set for Nine Perfect Strangers, which was that Nicole Kidman film where nine people from all over the world went somewhere to, to sort of figure themselves out. So um, during COVID, they had to get out of the US because of the everything was getting shut down. So they... Seek, sought refuge in Australia to shoot the rest to, to shoot the film. They're in pre-production, so they abandoned the US, came here, and they chose our place to shoot their um, retreat and to shoot their film. And who who would have ever predicted that? So the story of Soma continues to evolve. Um, but we're really, you know, deep in the work of doing what we can to enrich people's lives and to to make a difference and give people tools and to open open up more possibility and joy in, in people's lives. And it's so nuanced, you know, I'm constantly learning and every human being that you meet is different and everyone has different needs. And 
yeah, it's just just a fascinating thing. I still don't think I figured it out, like how you evolve a human being. Yeah, I don't like know if anyone's figured it out. There's so much to it, you know, and I've been at this for like decades. Um, you know, and 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 it just changes so much. It's like changing tides or changing sands, shifting sands. What works for one person won't work for the other, and what works at one point in your life, you find you evolve beyond it and need something else. Does the any time where I think where I've met people where I think they figured it out is where you meet like an old man or woman and they're sitting on a bench and they almost look translucent and they've got yeah. a permanent little kind of grin on their face and it's kind of like oh they've kind of figured it out like they just don't look like they care whether the bus comes or the bus doesn't come or they get their dinner or they don't get their dinner like <laughs> they look like they got it sussed and you can see yeah. it in every fabric of their face and how they move there just seems to be and it seems to I don't see it in Maybe I see it in babies and older people. That's what you see it in, like very old people. It's true. Babies, when you look at the brain of a baby, they're, they're in a state of enlightenment. When you look at someone who's in deep meditation, the brain state is exactly the same as a, as a, as a baby in the first months and even you know, a year or two of its life. It's, it's got the enlightenment, coherent brain going on. Wow. And when I look at, when I look at enlightenment, I, I look at my mom and I think she's figured it out. You know, I really aspire to be more like my mom. Uh, like like you said, she's got that that radiance and she's got this usefulness. But I realize what what my mom has 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 really figured out is that the, the secret to life is giving to others, you know, and always seeing the perfection. And I look at how she is with her her sons. She just always sees the perfection in her boys. Like there's nothing you could say to her, like you know, you you know, your son he's kind of not so great at this or that, and. She's just always, always attuned to just the beauty in us. And it's made us sort of who we are today, I feel. It's a huge part of just giving us that confidence and that trust in ourselves. And, um, you know, I, I kind of think, still feel like one, my mom is one of my greatest teachers and I'm so not even close to her level yet of, uh, of mastery of life. But I know I've got time. Mm. got time. You know, Pretty you. Cool, what, what a gift to give to your kids to kind of always to see the divine with them or always see the kind of only see the good in them. Like, and it's, it's easy to say it, but then to not judge them and really consciously choose to see the glory is yeah. such a good habit to get in the habit of doing for everyone, just not always, just for your children. Yeah. And uh, it's um, like just that gift of always seeing the, the beauty in life and the perfection in life and, even in ourselves, one of the things that I've noticed is harder for everybody, um, almost for, every, for, for almost everyone, it's the most difficult thing that they, they have to achieve in this life, and it's self-love. It seems like such a cliche, but it is the most difficult thing. That I, it's the most challenging work that I've, that I've come across for people to really master. It's how do they fall in love with themselves? Because you look at women, they're just so programmed to not feel like they're good enough, that they're fat enough, thin enough, tall enough, you know, special enough, young enough, like constantly like rejecting who and where, what they are and where they are. And you look at like self-love, the other side of that is self-hate. Like we're taught to kind of hate on ourselves. And even this pursuit, like go here and it's saying like where you are now is, is insufficient and who you are now is insufficient. So it's so deeply ingrained in us we just don't know like how to accept uh, you know, the, and love the skin that we're in and the people that we're are. We're always trying to be something outside of ourselves. 
And that's the thing about when you go on that spiritual journey, you realize that all of that is the, the, the human story. But there's this other part of me which is really beautiful and special. And, and that's the, the, the spiritual part, like the, the experience of someone's actual spirit when you have that. It's like, it's like that peace that passes all understanding. It's like that thing which is so, so sweet, so beautiful and so rich. And that's what, I, you know, I was getting lost in when I was younger, just so content just to be in that space and that space alone because nothing else made much sense or felt even close to being as good as that. I believe that's drug culture. It's like people wanting that experience but not having the, the knowledge or the teacher or the practice to be able to do it. So you just get it in the substance. And it's certainly one way to do it, you know. And I do believe, I don't know if there's a movement where you guys are, but there's this a, a movement in Australia and the US and a lot of other parts of the world where plants are becoming the teachers for human beings. And I do see like the, the, their value, their power and their place in our society, you know, kind of reinstating the place of these plant teachers to, to help heal and to um, help in the realisation of, of, of what we are. Yeah, helping people see beyond the Do you do any of them in Selma? Do you do any like plant medicine retreats or that type of thing? Or is it legal or not legal? Or how does Yeah, that it's funny that the word Soma itself, um, it has many cosmic meaning. One of one, the cosmic meaning is like the yin and yang, you know, the masculine, the feminine, the dynamic, and you know, the 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 different forces of creation. So that the Soma represents that, you know, the the sun and the moon and the masculine, the feminine and the, the stillness and the dynamism. And um, there's also a part of like, it's also related to a, a family of plants. So there's these Soma plants in India. And these were um, one of the properties of one of these family of plants within the family was the psychotropic, psychedelic. So sages and yogis were known to drink Soma, the Soma plant, and it would help with their spiritual unfolding. So Soma is called Soma and it wasn't the, I just love the word and a bunch of the meanings of it, you know, it means body in Greek as well. Um, but in Australia, it's not really legal to do plant medicines or to, to utilize those substances yet. There are people who are campaigning for that to change, um, but it doesn't seem to be something that, um, is able to be even re remotely mainstream or, or even clinical at this stage. Yet, you know, they're doing other trials, as I'm sure you guys have heard at different universities around the world. And the John Hopkins is doing a lot of research into psychedelics, MDMA and psilocybin. And it's having quite remarkable um, effects for people who have PTSD and who have depression or have gone through trauma. And then when you look at modern medicine, most of the substances people are taking a plan anyway all the pharmaceutical industry it's mostly leveraging naturally occurring compounds and just patenting them or changing them in a way so they are patentable but you know these plants have been with us forever what knows the human nervous system better than plants not, not many things so that they are fascinating teachers and um we 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 don't don't do those ceremonies here lost at least not that anyone knows about <laughs> brilliant well i can't yeah. wait to visit sam i really can't i'm looking forward to it. byron bay 
So our friend Sam Corlett is uh, he's originally from Terrigal, but he spent a lot of time in Byron and just speaks Loves so fondly in my head. It's this glorious place full of wonderful people and there's surfing. Not that I can even surf, but it just even the idea of it sounds like, oh, what fun. It's a very special place. It really is. Like I've traveled the world and people say, Where we where would you live? And like where I am now. It is such a beautiful place. We've gone through, I don't know if you heard about it, but we've gone through like incredible crisis recently. We, we had two floods, like two of the worst floods in the history of the place within 28 days. Normally you get one every, you know, 70 years or something of that scale. And we had two in a month. Wow. And yeah. And it was just so trying for the area. But when you when you're here and you're experiencing it, even you know we got a little bit flooded here at Soma, but the, the galvanization it brought to the community and how everyone banded together and you'd never seen anything like it, like the bonds of community because the government was wasn't around. It did nothing. It didn't mobilize any troops. So a friend of mine, she was raising money to get a helicopter to places where because roads had been washed away, there were landslides, people were cut off, there was no electricity and water in different places or food. People were pregnant, giving birth out in the back of the, you know, in the, in the hinterland. It was really fascinating, like all the things that we had to do as a community to actually get through it. And it just showed that this, this place does have that rare thing we call community because I've never really experienced community before. We say there's community, but mostly it's not, you know. So it's a, it's a special place. It's a, like it's our, our, the spiritual, one of the spiritual centres or Mecca for Australia. And hence, hence why I just kind of did did Soma here. It just felt like it needed to happen here. And there's so few of these places here, actually. It's just Brilliant. the other problem with the Western world is there's everything so damn expensive to run a retreat, to operate a retreat, to buy the land, to build. You know, it's yeah, crazy. When you, when you hear that it's 22 acres and you've got a retreat center and going, jeez, that ain't cheap. Because I know Bondi is like, people want to live there and you hear 22 acres Byron. and you've got big retreats like, wow, that's like good going. Yeah, well, you know, it's just I'm, I feel like I'm just a custodian of the land of this place. You know, that's the, the, the non-attachment aspect. I really know the land chose me and I don't own it at all. It's, you know, I'm just helping to, to support what wants to happen here. And then, it's, you know, I'll retire and someone else will take over. Take the torch, carry the torch forward. Yeah, exactly. It's brilliant. Well, I really look forward to meeting you in person. Yeah, really. Yeah, lovely chatting with you. Yeah, thanks, guys. You've been on my radar for a while, so I was like, jumped at the chance to get in and have a conversation with you. Oh, yes, great crack. Well, yeah, hopefully we'll be in Byron someday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got a place to stay whenever you come over. Oh, yeah, thanks, brilliant. Guys. And likewise over here, we have a great, we have, we have good community here. We have great yeah. community. Yeah. There's been no floods recently, but there's just, there's good heads around. A slow, continuous one during winter often, it feels like. Yeah, I don't doubt you guys have got community, good community. You got that energy where you would just you would magnetize, you know, kind-hearted people and take them on a big journey. Yeah, well, it's great fun. Well, yeah, thanks for this, Gary. It's been great fun. Yeah, thanks for the time. Thanks for sharing too. Yeah, as the expression goes, you know, you you don't get taught anything. You just remember things. Yeah, so true really is but well this has been a great reminder for monday morning for us yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a great reminder good start to the week i absolutely love that such a great reminder for me like how to live a more open-hearted more present more inflow more acceptance of the upstroke and the downstroke and not just be constantly craving the upstroke 
Yeah, I think that a great reminder in terms of acceptance, really just accepting life. I really enjoyed that. And I guess if you made it this far, I gather you're probably into it. And if you didn't, if you struggled with it, um, sorry about that. We're just, <laughs> we're, we're just super into this and we've been curious about this for so long. And um, it's yeah. kind of one of our sweet spots. Well, I, th- I, th- I think it's just so important just to focus on the internal and how to have a better relationship with yourself. And as Gary said there at the end, um, self-love, it's such a challenging thing. And how can we move more into a more loving relationship with ourselves because everything stems from that, you know, relationship with ourselves. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. We really, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, your time is so valuable and we're delighted you joined us today. We genuinely are. So on that note, wishing you a wonderful day full of self-love, fun, full of acceptance and full of gratitude to the beauty that is within the every moment. of life. Yeah, so there we go. Yeah, thanks and massive shout out to Gary Garrow. He's brilliant, really, really is. And check out Selma. And yeah, they look amazing on Instagram. So thanks, Mel. See bye, ya. Bye, 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 bye. bye, bye, bye. bye.